0: Well, we're only seven, eight minutes late, which is for us on time. (coughs) Excuse me. Here we are, September the 13th, 2020, uh, lecture discussion number 115 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. And as Dave might have intimated, we have returned. If Dave exists, how would he know if he doesn't? But uh, assuming that. Somebody is correct. we have returned, and once again refuting all those accusations that uh, I have uh, absconded to an undisclosed Caribbean island with bags full of tithing money that not true, turns out. Uh, and some people may object that they would uh, not find my physical presence in Anchorage, Alaska on September 13, 2020, uh, particularly persuasive. They would say, just because you can peer here does not mean that you haven't absconded with vast amounts of tithing, duffel bags. And uh, considering that I have not yet been successful in circumventing the ankle bracelet, uh, they would still working on that, actually, uh, currently luring the, the neighborhood animals into my backyard. Uh, hoping for a cat because that's a prime candidate uh, for the eventual transfer. I'll just put it around its neck. And so feel free to add uh, your Schrodinger joke at this time. In what state is the cat unobserved with an ankle bracelet or for a collar? And really, uh, what state? Well, I mean, Utah, Idaho, Arkansas, what state? So, uh, I-, I could still possibly retire. Where would we retire? And in some trailer park somewhere where it'd be. But we're back, really and truly, and planning to be here again next week. If we can plan that far ahead, I'll get to that in a moment. Where were we when we left? We were at lecture one hundred and fourteen. That's August the twenty third. And that was mostly the introduction of Moses's body and Adam's body And Christ's body, I was beginning to build the case that those three bodies, physical bodies, had a relationship that was extraordinary, as mostly it always is. And that was the introduction to that. And that relationship, or the relationship, those, I think they're evident, unmistakable. The issue then becomes... Not that they are related, the bodies of Moses, the bodies of Adam, or, I'm sorry, the body of Adam, the body of Moses, and the body of Christ. There is no, that's not the issue. The issue becomes the depth of that relationship. How deep is the typological connection between Adam, Moses, and Christ with respect to their physical body? We know there are spiritual uh, Association. So to repeat just a bit, obviously Christ's body, the Luke 135 uh, is where it begins for us. And the angel, that's Gabriel, answered and said to her, Mary, Gabriel talking to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. I have the overshadowing, the hovering of the Holy Spirit over Mary that ties back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? But you know all of that. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy thing. And here is where the King James Bible, bang, comes through better than any other translation. In case you think that we can get away from the King James Bible, we really can't. I get questions. What translation am I reading? I'm reading the New King James. The King James Bible says, therefore, also that holy thing. Who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And Son of God, of course, takes you to Proverbs 30, verse 4, and Hebrews 1, 2 through 6. It is not a subordinate. It is not a lesser uh, position in the Godhead. It's the Son, Proverbs 30, verse 4. But let me repeat. Also, that holy thing, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Luke 135 is beyond our human capability comprehensions. Just for today, I want you to recognize the accuracy of this King James Version, the description of Christ as the holy thing. Most Bibles, uh, most translations will not do that. In fact, I can't think of another one that does. The only one that I am aware of is the Old King James or the King James Version. Most will have Holy One. And I'm not going to contest Holy One. Holy One brings Psalm 1610 into the discussion. 1610 is incredibly important. Because 1610... Uh, uh, also quoted in acts 2 22 through28 nor will God allow your holy One to undergo corruption in other words nor will you and I put God in there so no one misunderstands nor will you allow your holy one to go undergo corruption. And again, Peter quotes the, uh, Psalm sixteen, ten, in Acts two, twenty-two through twenty-eight, referencing the body of Christ. So he says, "The body of Christ." Peter does makes that certain that the body of Christ will not go into corruption, and we know it did not go into corruption. How long did it not go into corruption? Three days, three nights, sign of Jonah, seventy-two hours. God can count. There is no, and it never went into any kind of corruption. The body of Christ is not corruptible; it's an incorruptible body. And of course, I made uh, I made uh, references to the body of, of uh, Adam, and of course, the body of Moses also seem to have this kind of prophecy in them. And I'll explain that as we go on. Not seem, I believe, in the case of Adam, that it's definitive, holy thing though is incredibly important it's an omission that the body of Christ cannot be described it's incomprehensible to repeat that the greatest of all mysteries it's the mystery of godliness it's the hypostatic union it is god adding humanity infinity adding perfect humanity and it's always perfect it's never not perfect and that's First Timothy 3.16. Nothing. No one can describe the God-man. It can't be described. And therefore, that's why the Bible is so beautiful. It says it's a holy thing. There is no descriptive element to it. It's All that all it can be given is holy thing. And it's reminiscent. Reminiscent. When I have something that can't be defined, can't even be described, can't be vocalized, can't even be thought of, that's the holy thing. Then where else do I go in the Bible to find what would be accurately or reasonably similar to it? Is there anything else that you can think of that is not describable or had, had not been describable? No one was able to describe it and has therefore a similarity to Luke 135. It's reminiscent of the manna, isn't it? Exodus 16, the bread from heaven. Now obviously the bread from heaven that descends is a portrait of Jesus Christ. He says so. He is the bread of life, John 6:33 through 35. He says that he is the manna. So the Holy thing says that he is also the manna. at Exodus 16:4 and John 6:6 the, the the manna is described as having this association with testing somehow manna is involved in some kind of test And that makes it clear that the one who is the bread of life is announcing that he is the one who gave the manna to the nation of Israel. Christ said, I'm the manna. He installs testing in John 6.6. That ties us to 16.4, which is a description of the testing of the manna. And he is saying, I am the bread. I am the one who tests. I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts. He is the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. He keeps doing it over and over and over again so that everyone knows that he is the I am that I am. That is his name. And that is also the name of the entirety of the triune Godhead. But we'll get to that again as I keep going, hopefully. So why does God test? He obviously is testing with respect to the bread of life, which is himself. So what is that test? And all of that, I just put all of that on today just to give you uh, this one little piece. Israel had no idea what the manna was. Exodus 16:15. So when the children of Israel saw it, that's their idea. That's it. We have something on the ground. It's pure. It's white. It's not frost. It's bread. It's holy. It descends from heaven. They saw it and they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Exodus sixteen fifteen, And that is why Luke 1, 35 is the holy thing. Because we know that this is something. And we know it is God, but we don't know how to describe it. And you see, I hope, that relationship, this manna and the holy thing. Exodus 16.31, the house of Israel called its name manna, essentially because it applies to the question, what is it? Luke 135, holy thing, the same inability described Jesus' body. Now, remember, what did he do in communion? What's the first thing he said? Here, take this. This is my body. The body is a holy thing. The same inability to describe manna and Jesus' body. And we should expect that, being that Christ is the bread of life. And with a holy thing, there is the counterfeit. Is there not? If I have a holy thing, what else am I going to have? Somewhere in the Bible, I should have an evil thing. Because that is what the scriptures is telling us. There is this truth and the lie. There is good and there is evil. We have a country today that does not know the difference between good and evil. If you're watching anything at all, we have a country that thinks evil is good and good is evil. That is Isaiah 520. Every pastor that I can see or talk to recognizes this country is so fragile. It is about to collapse. Now, if let's just talk about what's going to happen here on the 18th, 19th, and 20th of September because I get a lot of phone calls and a lot of letters with respect to Rosh Hashanah. Every time there is a feast day, as you are aware, everyone is aware that's listening to this. This is for people who might tune in one time or maybe told this by somebody else uh, that has listened to this, this particular broadcast. But we have seven feast days. We have four for spring. And we have three fall. The four spring is universally uh, considered to have been fulfilled by Christ. He made sure that his crucifixion was on Passover. He made sure that the three days and three nights of the sign of Jonah was on unleavened bread. He made sure that he was was resurrected on first fruits. Shavuot is the... uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. So those four spring festivals have all had something incredible happen on them. There's nothing to compare yet on the three fall festivals. What's interesting, of course, is that there's how many festivals? There's seven. All sevens go back to one seven. But in any event, three fall festivals have not been uh, fulfilled in the sense of something unbelievable and spectacular. Now, I'm probably completely lost with where I am, but my point being, yea, a point already, my goodness. I thought my point was all the way on page seven this week now. Look at what I've done. I've gone off the rails and I'm talking about this. What's interesting about this is that trumpets has such a powerful positioning with respect to the abduction of the bride. And so there's a great deal of excitement all over the all over the world. We're seeing the hour of this particular country, the United States, one of the young lions of Ezekiel 38 show itself to be heading towards evil. And, at a, and the pace of which is the rapidity of it is almost not. Uh, it's so quickly that we're, we're shocked to see it. I can count it in my lifetime easily how far we have gone into the darkness and how far we are going to go. If he pulls the church out, and it'll happen so fast, it's just boom. And I believe, as you know, I've said many times, there's going to be a hiddenness to it. It's going to have a masking. No one will really recognize it except for Israel. But if the church is removed, then the the country is is lost, completely and totally lost. Uh, And they will celebrate that. They hate the church, they love the evil. Anyway, prepare for that. Uh, do I know it's going to happen on, uh, on the feast day of trumpets? I am very confident that it will. Do I know? I don't know for sure. Am I confident? Absolutely I am. Could it be this one? It could easily be this one because so many pieces are in place. Israel's in place. War has happened. Man's knowledge has gone crazy with respect to the subatomic world microbi- microbiology. And uh, quantum physics to be the most obvious. Uh, so all of those, all those precursors are here. The nation of Israel is here. Jerusalem is now in control. It's the capital. All of these things have happened. And so at some point you expect that trumpet to, to, to be heard. Anyway. With the holy thing there's the counterfeit, the evil thing. that's John 17:15. it says in the old King James once again, yea, old King James, the evil it doesn't say the evil one it says the evil. Uh, and I think it's obvious that that is the son of perdition that is right above it in the context. So the evil is the son of perdition and that is the evil thing. The Satan man, if you will, Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent happens. as demonstrated in John seventeen fifteen. The God man, the holy thing, and the Satan man, the evil thing. And again, Jesus identifies the Son of Perdition as the evil thing. That's Christ's word Himself. The evil thing is the eighth of the eleven mysteries. The mystery of iniquity. It's Second Thessalonians two seven through nine of the eleven mysteries. It's the eighth. I said that already, but say it again just in case I... never mind. Have an expectation of stunning complexity with respect to the evil thing. That's what I'm trying to say. It isn't easy. It's not obvious. It's incredibly subtle. There's vestiges of it everywhere. Tentacles, if you wish to think of it that way. Places to go to, to study. Nonetheless... The holy thing is infinite. The evil thing is finite. The evil thing is a created being. There's no comparison in complexity. Okay, for those keeping score, we are in the subject of the body of Christ, the body of Adam, and the body of Moses. That's the subject today. It may not seem like it. Adam and Moses are identified as types in Scripture of Jesus Christ. They are honored, they are lifted up and declaratively said, Romans 5.14, Deuteronomy 18.15, these are types of Christ, these two, now there are many types of Christ, all of scripture testifies of Christ, 5.39 John, everything is about Christ, that's the purpose of scripture, two are lifted up, if you wish to say, separated out and uh, identified. In Scripture, Romans five fourteen, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, Adam and Moses. Now I'm not talking about the spiritual aspect of Moses and Adam today. I may be a little bit, but I'm really focusing on their bodies. Their bodies will testify of Christ's body, as will their Lord or their words and actions. And what I mean about the bodies of Adam and Moses and Christ is primarily the deaths of Adam, Moses, and Christ. That's where we're going to go first. Though, as previously mentioned, Adam Genesis 3, uh, I'm sorry Genesis 2:21 through 23, Adam was placed into a deep sleep, very deep sleep. Most believe that was a death state of some kind. So he had this state that replicated his creation at 2:7 Genesis at 2, Two twenty-one, twenty-three. he is now lying completely still, not going to corruption. So twice now, he is in that kind of condition. And Adam's body lay without corruption in both of those incidences. Uh, and that's the same as Jesus' body, again, laying without corruption. Abraham also had a deep state, and it's important to know that. We'll have to deal with it in Genesis 15, 12. But from the deep sleep of Adam, as you know, the building of the woman is done, is accomplished, is finished. Which clearly is attached to the release of the living blood and the living water from the side of Jesus on his crucifixion. Because the word is cella. i said it thousands of times. It's not rib. It's cella. Which means side. The side of Adam was opened up. Out of the side of Adam came bone and blood and out of the side of Christ his side is pierced as well as Adam's and uh, and the release of the living blood and the living water from the side of Jesus John identifies it as water and blood 1934, Revelation 22 1, it's living water so that's water that is not corrupted, that's blood that is not corrupted that's not dead blood as you want to see in all the silly movies Never take your theology from people who think that is dead blood. I I constantly read uh, people who want God or Christ's body to go into corruption. You can't do it. That's your problem, that's your barrier. You cannot penetrate that barrier. His body did not go to corruption. That means his blood did not go to corruption. So how do you get death without corruption? That's what he did. He is the only one to die without corruption. He's sinless. He has to be sinless or there is no salvation. <sighs> My Not to say that word. What I'm trying to present today is that this deep sleep of Adam is attached. Immediately you should attach it to the release of the living blood from the cella, from the side of Christ on the cross. So the the cross and the building of, of Eve also have a relationship. The Eve is a picture of the church generally assumed and thought and taught, and I believe that's true. The church is built out of the living blood and the living water from the side of Christ. So that relationship is there. So both the first Adam and the last Adam were pierced. I submit that they were pierced in the exact same location. Now the exact same location could mean that it's their body, or the side. Some people might think they were pierced in the exact same spot. We'll, we'll have to debate that at a future time. And again, from the first Adam came his bride. Last, likewise, the last day, Adam came the church. First Corinthians 15:45 through 49 sets up this wonderful description of the first Adam and the last Adam. And it should be uh, considered every time you get in these kinds of studies. Note that in both cases, the bride is brought to the bridegroom. In other words, the church is brought to Christ and the Eve or the woman was brought to Adam which is why Christ one of the reasons why Christ remains in the air at the abduction of his bride because he does 1st Thessalonians 4:15 through 18 the dead will rise first those of us who are remain alive will meet them in the air we will meet Christ in the air he does not touch the earth the church is brought to him Eve was brought to the woman was brought to Adam So there's lots of reasons, but that's one of the reasons. There are obviously, again, a whole host of elements uh, to his coming for the bride. Most commentators focus on the distinction uh, with the wife of of God. In other words, we have the bride of Christ and the wife of YHBH. And again, I I recommend Fruchtenbaum every time I get anywhere close to this discussion because he makes this incredible statement, uh, not incredible, but profound statement, That if you do not maintain an understanding of the bride of Christ and the wife of YHVH, if you blend them together, you will end in doctrinal error. It's important to know that there is a distinction. When Christ comes, uh, so I have the abduction of the bride by the bridegroom versus the return of the king. Let's say it that way, of Israel. When Christ comes for Israel, he sets his feet on the ground. When the church is brought to him, he is in the air. So he comes down to Israel. He goes to Israel, but the church is brought up to him. Just as again, repeating over and over and over again, the bride of Adam is brought to Adam. So we see that uh, capability or that uh, uh, connected connectivity. And Christ lands on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14:4. The Mount of Olives is then split in two. What's the next question that should come out, smack you in the forehead? Why is the Mount of Olives split in two? And obviously, I have Acts 1, 11 and 12, where Christ descends to the exact location where he ascends. He says, I'm going to come down to the exact location that I just left from. So you'll know I'm leaving and coming back to this particular geographical place. Obviously we need to know why. The ascending and descending theme is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um and that's the ladder of Genesis twenty eight twelve. And we did a lecture, when I say we, I mean I, did a lecture explaining that the ladder of Genesis twenty eight twelve is Christ himself. The mystery of Proverbs thirty verse four uh, is discussed in this context because we have the answer of Nicodemus's question of John 3:9 through 17 that's how you get to 34 of Proverbs in 28:12 Christ answers Nicodemus's question of John 3:9 through 17 in Acts 1:11 through 12 and somehow all of that is attached to the bronze serpent of Numbers 21 through 4 4 through 8 so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent lifted up, he lived. All that somehow melted to the Mount of Olives being split. And if you're talking about the Mount of Olives being split, then what should you do? If you're going to ask, why is the Mount of Olives being split into two? It's being split like this, I assume. How deep does it split? All the way to the ground? question becomes, what else has been split that no one could have thought could be split? Clearly, the veil on the Holy of Holies at the crucifixion was split top to bottom. Why does he split the Mount of Olives? Is he trying to shake the olives from the trees, I guess? What is the reason for him doing it? And I have posed often over the years of my so-called religious professional career the questions of these kinds of locations, these specific uh, longitudinal, latitudinal, latitudinal, locations, GPS, if you will. God is really good at GPS. He doesn't need a phone. He knows where everything is and where it always has been. He can see it outside of time. It's a real advantage. He can see time as motionlessness. But in other words, why this spot? Why does the creator of all things, the one in whom all things consist, John 1, 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, choose this place to ascend and descend? He said, from the place I am ascending, that is the place that I'm coming back. Pack a lunch, sit there, wait for him. When he comes for the wife, not when he comes, the adulterous wife that he's divorced, not when he comes for the bride, and the bride is in the air. The bride is brought to him. If you prefer the question this way, what else happened here? Why did he select his, let's just keep going. Why did he select his baptism, Matthew 3, 16, where the precious axe head floated to the surface after the branch was thrown and submerged? The axe head come up, 2 Kings 6, the place where the ark stood, Joshua 4, 10. What else happened there besides that which I just rattled off? Or what came first? Same thing with the ascend and descend location. Why is the ladder where Jacob said it was? How does that comport? How does that fit with Acts? Christ being omniscient God himself in the flesh seems to be going about. I'll say he is going about. Checking off boxes. I have all of these things I'm going to do. And I'm going to knock them off one at a time in a specific order. He's reclaiming specific positions, sites. He's doing something on all of these spots. And I want to think, why is he doing these things? He's doing marvelous things on these spots. So what does that make me think? That maybe evil things were done in that spot. It's almost like he's purifying them. Certainly, I believe he's checking boxes off. And being that he is the omniscient rememberer of all things, timeless, there can be no arbitrary or coincidental aspect. Omniscience is incompatible with with coincidence. And again, he can see it all. He can see it in from a position, a frame of reference that is outside of time. So to reinforce the equation, would Jesus know... Would he remember where he formed Adam's body, Genesis 2-7? Would he remember, would he know where Adam was placed into a deep sleep? Were they the same spot? No. Because one was inside the garden and one was outside the garden. So i got two spots to think about now. What happened first? Well, some people will say, well, Adam was formed there first. And some people would say that's where Eve was built. And that's the the first things to happen there of any great interest. Maybe not. Remember, Satan had control of the earth, Ezekiel 28. Where was Satan when he decided to lie? So we don't know. But I want you to begin to be weird like me. Would Jesus know, would he remember where he formed Adam's body? Gosh, please don't ask that question. That's an intentional, heretical question uh, given by the highly trained religious professional. I can ask really stupid questions like that because I have this designation. Yeah, I do. So that's really cool. That's where it gives me a tremendous amount of Power and hubris, or neither, or both, I don't know, who knows? Would Christ know where the tree of life was planted? He planted it. Does he remember? He's going to plant it again. Will it be? It'll be in the holy city, but where will it hover over? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, does he know where they are? Does he remember where the coverings were given, Genesis 3.21, when he took off the fig leaves and put the coverings of blood on Adam and, and the woman? Does he remember, did he see where Cain slew Abel? Did he know, does he know where Cain buried Abel? Um, excuse me. Wow. Obviously, do, he does. I, I, people will tell me, well, he, no one can know that because that was antediluvian. That was pre-flood. To repeat, God has a GPS system that is beyond our capabilities. Does Christ know? Duh. That's an intentional blasphemous question by the HTRP when I do it, but it is not, it is just pure blasphemy if you're not at an HTRP. If you're asking the question, does Christ know this? I don't know if Christ really knows. Is he confused? That's heresy. Wipe it from your system. It's impossible for him not to know. Impossible. (coughs) Now, obviously, I could go on all day. I've missed the last three weeks or two weeks, haven't I? So I've got to do three hours today to make up for it. Yeah. That sound you heard is every Facebook being turned off right now. Let's just keep doing this a little bit. What happened first at the city of Adam? Joshua 3.16 says there's a city of Adam. Why is it called the city of Adam? What happened there first? Why that location? But hopefully you get the point. Hurrah! A point. Page 7. Just like I said. Man, I'm good at this. (laughs) That's the rest of the people that were still listening now, just shut off. Okay. August 23rd, lecture number 114 was the Jude 9 discussion, the contending over the body of Moses that led us to the body of Adam, and you might remember that. I presented Naaman the Syrian as likely connected to Genesis 2 7. Hopefully, you might remember that as well. Eventually, all these things find resolution in Christ. John 5:39 keeps coming up, especially so in light of Romans 5:14, 1 Corinthians five fifteen, forty five through 49. Those are where Adam is described as this incredible picture portrait of Christ, identified as such. Deuteronomy 18:15, Jude 9, Matthew 17. That's where Moses is also brought to the level of Adam. In my opinion, those two are distinct at the least I'm proposing that the collection of evidences which uh, accompany Moses and Adam will bring clarity as to not only the sequence in what in, in which Christ does what he does but also the Genesis 3 Exodus 17 1 through7 7, Matthew 4 mark 1 Luke 4 component that's the lie of Satan. What I'm saying is, is God, Christ has a sequence, he has a step-by-step anatomy to what he does. Why is that sequence the, the anatomy? What is the order telling us? Why does he have that order? For those who may be listening for the first time, those verses I just rattled off, probably the last time you're listening to. All of those preceding scriptures are within the envelope of the nature of, lie, of the lie of Satan, which is... The abundance of your traffic going one by one to every angel that he could. Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen. Uh, and so once we establish the lie of Satan, we have God's refutation of it again. Refutation can only be said by a highly trained religious professional. If you think God, is, it's necessary for him to refute something, to argue against it, that's not true. He doesn't respond. He's, again, outside of time. So response and being timeless are in conflict. But effectively, Satan's lie attacks the goodness of God, accusing God of being the source of evil and denying that there is any existence at all other than God, that everything else does not have existence. God did not give us existence and therefore, there is no possibility that he can render judgment or accountability for sin. Uh, their wickedness, their hating, the rejecting of Christ, the rebellion, the lake of fire, all of that. All of that would be unjust if there is no existence. Now, I've made that argument hundreds if not thousands of times. Uh, see Psalm, recently, see Psalm 10.4. 10, 6 through 7, 10, 11, 10, 13. That's a summary of those who believe the lie. They accuse God of being evil. They have convinced themselves that they will never be in adversity, which means they will never be in accountability. They will never have any punishment. They'll never be held to account and they cling to their lie and they are therefore on a path to the place of destruction. But they don't think so. And they're on that path because God is good. He's always good. He wills that none choose to perish. Jesus Christ repeatedly declares that he is the saving one. His name means saving one. He's the good shepherd versus the evil shepherd in Zechariah. Uh, He gives his life for the sheep. It is his extended hand that reaches out and gives life to those who are dying and will die the second death, which is a, a destiny. In the lake of fire, he's trying to save. It's his blood, his saving blood that he's offering. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the truth. He is the absolute opposite to the lie. And he says so repeatedly, incessantly. He never ceases saying it. For some, if not most, uh, however, I should say but some, if not most, They will wish, they will hope, they will believe that the lie is going to prevail. And that is the thoughts of darkness. And I could go on and on and on, but I don't wish to digress rant. My new word that I'm going to use as many times as I can until I get some kind of honor bestowed on me for that word. When it's finally in the OED, the Oxford edition, I guess is what that's the dictionary. If Oxford allows digress rant, I want compensation. It's my money-making scheme of the week. A couple of things to realize is that when Christ is refuting the lie of Satan at Matthew 4, Luke 4, and he's referring back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7, as is Satan. Um, when that's going on, who's there? We see angels all over the place in these kinds of things. Angels are at Matthew 4. Uh, angels have a tendency to show up uh, whenever these discussions of the lie of Satan and the truth of God are being described in Scripture. So notice that. that It isn't just for mankind. There's a another aspect to what he is doing. If you want to say that he is... He, this is a courtroom-type procedure in that he is arguing. Well, who are in the jury box? Who are in the audience? It's not humanity. It's the angelic host. So this goes back to Ezekiel 28. Okay. Let's add more information. It's going to, again, seem disynchronous, though that's not going to be and in, in, uh, when it's further reviewed. Think slow motion replay here. Christ said seven things from the cross all sevens go back to the creation seven he said on the first seven father forgive them for they know not what they do luke 23:34 truly i say to you second saying truly i say to you today you shall be with me in paradise luke 23:42 through 43 Number three, woman, behold thy son. There's a behold there. So something unbelievable, God is saying, behold. Woman, behold thy son. There's a truth there that is astonishing. Behold thy mother. Notice those beholds. Something, again, unbelievable is being given to me. a truth. Truths are being given to Mary and John and all who heard this. Who else heard it? Angels heard it. He's on the cross. He said, "Listen, if I if I want to, I don't, I won't because it's not my plan." But he introduces angels into the discussion. Why does he do that? Because they're there. They're all over the crucifixion. They're watching it. They understand that this is the truth versus the lie. Number 4. "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Oh my gosh, is this ever a Disaster in the church. Disastrous. Psalm 22.1. The hind of the morning. It's a song. He's quoting the first line of a song. as in Psalm 22.1. It's not him that is singing the song. It is Israel. They know it. They know that this is their song. It's like we know what our anthem is. If he said, uh, my country, tis of thee, we'd all go, well, that's a song. My eyes have seen the glory. That's our song we would go. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that were witnessing that. All of Israel that were witnessing that. They started beating their breasts, right? They knew that's the hind of the morning. He's singing the hind of the morning song. That's our song. We're the ones that sing that. Why is he singing that? That's the words Israel will speak when they cry out to be saved by Christ. Number five, I thirst John 19, 28. Number six, it is finished, John 19, 30. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, Luke 23, 47. Those are the seven things that he says from the cross. And most obvious of the most obvious questions, why did Jesus Christ choose to say these seven things in the order that he said them? Two questions there. Why these seven why does why the order of the seven? Here's a third free question. How much time thought did the infinite, omniscient, timeless God in the flesh put into his seven sayings? That's an intentional, stupid question. So I've now made the point that HTRPs are stupid. I can't argue with any of that. Why are the words to Israel, the song of the hind of the morning, the fourth lamp of the menorah? Because I have seven that puts me to the menorah as well as the uh, feast days, as well as also sevens. I'm going to work myself through it. I got these seven sevens. Uh, I I mean, I have these seven sayings, so they're all going to fit. But I have the fourth lamp of the menorah. That's the prominent lamp, the servant lamp. Why is the words of the hind of the morning, uh, the, the hind of the morning, why is that the fourth lamp? Why isn't that the first lamp? He could have put him in any order he wanted. This is the order that it had to be. Why is that? Because he's omniscient. This is the only order it can be because of his omniscience. But obviously the seven days, this the creation seven are here. The sun and the moon. The sun and the moon are also on what lamp? Fourth lamp. The greater light and the lesser light was given on the fourth lamp. Fourth day. Christ came on the fourth day from Adam. That's four thousand years of the seven thousand years. One, a thousand years is one day to the Lord. Don't forget this one thing, you idiots. I added that part. It's really not in Second Peter five three through eight or three eight. Don't forget this one thing. A thousand years is a day. Is one day he counts. Seven days, 7,000 years. That's what he means. The light of the world, the light of life, that's John 8:12, Genesis 1, 3, has a 7,000-year redemptive plan. Christ is the light of the world. He says so. I am the light that struck the world, Genesis 1, 3, John 8:12. I have a 7,000-year redemptive plan. Why is Psalm 22, 1, the song of the hind of the morning, why did Christ place this into the fourth position? Again, he's not the hind of the morning. Israel is the hind of the morning. Everybody knows that, but the Gentiles. All of us are, what's that word? That's right. Dumb is rocked. No idea why he said that. They think that somehow the three that is one can isolate and forsake themselves, the oneness. Uh, it's inconceivable. It's mathematically Foolish also. For today, which of these seven would have been something that Adam or Moses would have said? Because obviously Adam and Moses are part of this. Again, they are defined as such. We were given no information aside from the 930 years as to the death of Adam. How significant was the death of Adam? We know that the death of Moses is unbelievably significant. I'm just asking for a friend. I have no friends. That's a lie. I should not lie. Well, I can lie a little bit. Friend might be a relative term. We're given no information. We got 930 years as to the death of Adam, Genesis 5:5. Actually, Genesis 5:2 is really quite interesting. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them Adam kind. That's what it says. Now your Bible might say mankind, but man and Adam are interchangeable, as you know. He called them Adam kind. In the day they were they were created, and to this day we call human beings mankind, don't we? Uh, no one that, of course, now we're going to call them they kind or person kind. We can't do that anymore because we we cannot have what, what God has said we must have, which is male and female. Why did he name Adam, Adam? I see your hand trying to shut me down already. i got two and a half more hours to go. Why did he name Adam, Adam? There must have been some reference to something. He, this is just arbiter, well, I'll 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 just call him Adam. Man, why did he do that? Is he referring to something, is my point. There must be some reference to the fall of angels in my most humbleness of opinions. Humbleness is not to be confused with humbleness. Humbleness, O-U-S. So I have humbleness. Humblenessness is probably a word or sure to be one. More money for me. I have long proposed that the angelic host viewed the creation of Adam and the organic earth as a response because Satan ran through the entire angelic host and dropped a third of them. It might be billions. We don't know how many angels there were, certainly tens of millions, because they watch us and they're assigned of us. So uh, there might be a relationship mathematically between the saved and the angelic host. They might equal, they might, there might be equality there. We don't know. We'll find out. But you know it's going to tie up in a beautiful bow. But it's got to be some kind of reference to the fall of the angels because there's nothing else it could refer to at that point. So Adam must mean something to the angel. They must have all said, oh, he named him Adam. That makes sense. I have long proposed that again that they saw this as a an argument. But that can't be because that's incompatible with timelessness. Anyway, back to the Seven sayings from the cross. I'm, I'm, I take particular interest in what Christ says at John 17:9 through12. because it's amazing. I've got to take my glasses off to see even anything now. I have gotten so old. John 17:9 through 12, I need to read all of 17, but I can't, in no time because Terry won't let me. I pray for them. He says, this is Christ. I do not pray for the world, but now he's talking to um, he's talking to the triune Godhead here. So take your shoes off and be ready. I pray for them. I do not pray and he's praying aloud. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I'm emphasizing things on purpose in case you think I'm just weird. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perditions that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Okay. Okay. I don't even know how to describe that. But first and foremost, John 17 is the second person of the triune Godhead speaking aloud, praying aloud. Now, does he have to pray aloud to himself and the Holy Spirit and the Father? No, they're one. They're, they're we. They're the Elohim. They're the us. Oneness. They're one. He says it. So he's praying aloud. So who hears him? If you said humans hear him, you're right. Who else heard him? Angels are always there. Certainly at this point, John 17. Pay attention when the Elohim, the us, Genesis 1.1. The Bible starts with the us, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.26. Genesis 3.22. Matthew 3.16 and 17. Matthew 17.5. Pay attention when the Elohim speaks to be heard. Uh, At at Matthew um, uh, 3.16 and 17. Matthew 17.5. We get to see two of them. Two of the three, the Father is not seen. He's, he's the one. That, it, the, the, the Son is the Father made visible. The Father does not is not seen. He's heard, but we can see the Holy Spirit and the Son. We can see two of the three. Matthew 13, 16 and 17. Matthew 17. Or, I'm sorry. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Matthew 17, and 5. That's amazing. They're described for us. One of them descends as a as a dove descends. It's not a dove, but it descends like one. They could see the Holy Spirit descend. They could see the sun. They could see two of the three that are one, that are the we, that are the us of Genesis one. That's unbelievable. These are triune passages. Again, the revealing of the Elohim, which means that it is high, holy ground. Why did the burning bush burn where it did? Why did... Moses have to take off his shoes? I gave you clues there, didn't I? All of this, the triune Godhead, is beyond the capability of mankind to understand it. Triune passages are without dispute, though, uh, what would be the appropriate adjective here, butchered by the theological community. Beware of those who always or seem to always subtract Christ from the Elohim. It is a common blasphemy in our time. No, it is the common blasphemy of our time, heresy of our time. And I want you to pay attention that John 17:11 that they may be as one as we. John 17:21 may be one as us, I mean, it's there it is. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that uh, they may also be one in us. Genesis 1.1. OK, with that established now, got to hurry. Next, we can take note of all of John 17. It's particularly incredible. Because there's this constant repeating. I'll do it for a second really fast. Your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh. That he should give eternal life to all as many as you have given him. And thus the eternal life that they may know. that. Blah, blah, blah. I, I finished the work which you have given me to do. You, you're, you were given. You gave them. You have given me. I have given to them. Given me. Given me. Gave me. Given me. Turn the page. Gave me. Given them. Gave me. Given me. How many givens gave's are there? Oh, guess what? Where's my... What do? Oh, right back here. John 17 has 17 givens and other gaves. Given, gave, etc. 17 of them. Christ says, says this 17 times. Can't he come up with a... Doesn't he have a thesaurus? You can make an... uh, 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 Also pay attention to how many times he says kept. Seventeen times. Jesus Christ says aloud to everybody. Angelic and human who are listening. Seventeen times. It's probably a coincidence. He probably can't count. He's just a poor speaker. Coincidentally... uh, when applied to Christ, His omniscience, infinite God that He is, that cannot be true. It's blasphemy. 17 happens to be a factor of something. 17 times 3 squared equals, go for it now, gotta get your phones, 153 fish. I wonder if the Word made flesh knew this. Intentionally heretical question. Obviously, the 153 fish, this powerful proof of the deity of Christ, is contained here in this passage of John 17. This prayer of Christ, if you wish to think of it that way. And I've got no time to deal with it. The Old Testament complement is where we should go first in John 17. In my humbler opinion... Is humbler a word? Yes, it is. Genesis 3.12 is referenced to John 17.12. I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. When he says name, he's referring to uh, Exodus 3.14. He's also referring to uh, Revelation three eight. Those who have kept his name, preserved his name, he will also preserve them from the time of the tribulation. So knowing his name, that he is the I am that I am, that he is in the us, he is in Genesis 1.1. He is the second person of the we, of the us, of the Elohim. I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the evil thing, John 17.15. John seventeen eleven is interwoven with John seventeen twelve. Those I'm sorry, keep through your name those whom you have given me. So he puts his name and the keeping and the and the giving, all of that are tied together here. Now consider Genesis three twelve, because that's what I think we're dealing with. And all the time, all the while, remember First Corinthians fifteen forty-five through forty-nine, and the, the first Adam and last Adam is what that is, and the typology of Adam identified Romans five four. So keep all of that in your your mind now. All those spinning plates, all that those pieces. Then the Adam said, "You might read it." Then the man said, Genesis three twelve. But I, then the Adam said, because his name. And again, interchangeable. Then the Adam said, the woman whom you gave me with, I'm sorry, the woman whom you gave with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost. Except the son of, except the evil thing. In other words... The first Adam said to God at his trial that he was unable. Well, I'll put it this way. He was unable to say, those whom you have gave me, and that would just be the woman, those whom you have given me, the one you have given me, I have kept. He was not able to say that. He was not able to say none of them is lost. He cannot say what Christ says. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I've kept, and none of them is lost. The woman was lost, wasn't she? And that makes this 3.12 an unbelievable, I'm saying this a lot today, incredibly complex, amazingly wise statement by Adam. How much thought do you think he gave to making that statement? Did he understand that Christ would come and walk in the garden, call out for him, and ask him, have you ate from the tree? And Was he prepared? Oh, obviously he was. And this is what he said. The woman whom you gave me, I'm sorry, the woman whom you gave with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. I am suggesting that he thought of that. uh, It wasn't just off the top of his head. He put a tremendous amount of energy into making that perfect. And I believe that he did. Adam knew, you see. Adam knew that he could not retrieve the woman from sin. If he sacrificed himself for her, gave his sinless blood, because he had sinless blood. In other words, he gave her a transfusion of his sinless blood into her dying blood. She still could not be permanently, eternally kept. Only that'd be temporarily kept. So he knew that can't be done. Salvation must be eternal. It must be permanent. It must be kept. And he could not keep her. She could, uh, if she ate again, she would be in death once more, right? Um, and God could, and He did guard the guard the tree. But that means He has to. If Adam, if He guards the tree, and Adam gives her gives His life for her, then would God replace Adam so that the earth could be fruitful and multiply? Or did the fruitful and multiplied is that a sign to only Adam and Eve? Is it exclusive to them in the sense that they must begin it. No one else can begin it. So there can't be a replacement for Adam. Why not? A lot of people think there's a replacement for Eve. In fact, a lot of people think Eve is a replacement for somebody else. Ah, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. I used to know these things backwards and forwards. Ah, Sorry. But there's a, a complete bunch of nonsense that there was a woman before Eve. The only solution... It had to be an eternal solution. And so that is why Adam said what he said. And that, of course, is a sound doctrine. Uh, Lilith. Yay. Old person comes through again. There's some people out there that think that Lilith. Uh, which, of course, is ridiculous. Again, it's ridiculous because fruitful and multiplier are involved here. Existence is involved here. The solution to sin, eternal security, all tied up in all of that. They don't know that because that would require they read something. If I wanted to stop heresy, well, that's not a good way to put it. If I wanted to, uh, the old adage, I had a friend. Not anymore. But uh, he sent his father a book. He knew his father would not read it. So he put, uh, I think he put $500 in the book and gave it to his dad for his birthday, knowing full well that his dad would never open the book and probably throw the book away. So he was just going to wait. And after a while, he was going to call his father and say, hey, did you ever read that book? And his father would lie and say, sure, I did. And then he would say, what did you do with the $500? And then wait. It was actually quite brilliant. The, the simile is, is that I could give books to people who are in the profession. They would never read them. I could hide millions of dollars in the books. They would never find it because they're never going to read it. They don't care. They have their system. It's blasphemous. They like it. It makes them money. <sighs> anyway, I've often wondered why Christ said things that Adam must have thought. The first saying of the seven from the cross, the second Adam says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I imagine that the first Adam would have considered, Father, forgive her, for she did not know what she did. First Timothy 2.14. But you see, Adam knew, fully knew what he was doing and why. And so did Moses. See, that's the right relationship. Moses hits the rock twice, Numbers 20:11. He fully knows, just as Adam fully knows, he fully knows, he willfully disobeyed. Moses did that with full knowledge. He can count to two. Uh, we talked about how he was trying to, uh, many times I've talked about how he was trying to uh, give up his position. And Adam has this in common with him. Moses is called the most humble man of all uh, by God. That eliminates me. Ah, God. Uh, maybe I'm in the top billion. Ten billion? Helpfully? Hopefully? But I want you to see that Adam fully knew what he was doing. Not deceived. Moses fully knew what he was doing. Not deceived when he struck the rock twice. Face to face. Moses at his death at the hand of God is face to face with God. Moses' spirit went directly into the hands of Christ there. He was not dim. He had no loss of vigor. He was perfectly healthy. So his, his spirit goes from a body that is not in near death into the hands of God. What did Christ say? Christ, God, received the soul of Moses, which is something we must connect to the seventh saying from the cross. We know, again, very little about the death of Adam, but we can and we should extrapolate. We have the death of Christ. We have the death of Moses. We should be able to put those together and find out about the death of Adam. They've got to be relatively similar. Certain aspects of them for certain. So we can at least take the second Adam and apply it to the death of the first Adam. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, 49, Romans 5.14, 14, 1 Timothy 2, 14. That's the template. Did Adam die at the location of Genesis 2, 7? I submitted that that's what happened. That's the Naaman position. Was the creator of Adam with Adam when he died, as he was dying? What do you think? I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a tender-hearted person. I carried one of my dogs, Sierra, to be she's 16, German Shepherd mix. I carried her. I did not want her to die alone. I have another at that's thir- 13. I know she's coming soon. I'm not going to be, she's not going to be alone. I know how important that is. Do you think... Uh that Christ did not go and be with Adam as he died. Now, of course, Christ is omnipresent, so he's everywhere. But I'm saying that this is somebody like Moses. He's with Moses. Is he with Adam? I think I can make the case that that's true, based on Moses' typology. Did Christ say to Adam what he said to the thief? He says to the thief today... You'll be with me. Did he say that to Adam? How many of the things that Christ said from the cross are referencing things that Adam and Moses might have said or done? Or somebody else, if you wish. You can bring in all kinds of elements. Abel, uh, Enoch, Noah. But I think the ones that have been brought into the forefront Are Moses and Adam? So, essentially, I'm asking, how deep is this Moses-Adam typology? How many pieces are there? If you think it is shallow, I am suggesting that you should rethink that. I have a book that has 300 things that Moses portrays as type of Christ. I think they didn't get close. I don't think they got close at all. These are included in the Bible to testify of Christ. So next week we will continue in our never-ending journey to solve Jude nine. I have given you, surreptitiously in my subtle, uh, in, 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 I can't say, can't say the word anymore. What's happening to me? Enigmatic way I have given you. The solution to Jude 9. Again. I keep doing it. I'm so friendly. See you later.